Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word. A local law enforcement officer has a new young adult novel about a hitman father and his teenage son. I can't say that there was a specific trigger that happened that made me decide to give this a whirl. I pretty much just let it flow. Plus, a Valley artist, filmmaker, producer, and writer has a new novel set in 1940s Harlem. The 40s was a time when clothes were better. You know, we're wearing hats, we're wearing gloves, we're walking around in a space that is about personal sophistication. And NPR's All Things Considered co-host Mary Louise Kelly joins us to discuss her new memoir. I just remember sitting in that helicopter looking down over Baghdad and thinking, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) I love my job and I worked really hard to get here, but my son needs me and I am thousands of miles away and I can't get to him. But first, it's National Poetry Month. And as this is our last episode in April, we wanted to showcase some poets from the region in their own words. First up is Joni Wallace, who's one of the featured poets at the Tucson Poetry Festival, which happens April 22nd through 23rd. This poem is called Landscape with Wasps, and it's from Wallace's new book of elegies, Landscape with Missing River. We give it all away, except for your deering banjo, a pair of boots, a belt buckle, your thesis on missile steering mechanisms. Except for a farm ledger for crop yields, the cow dog, wasp nests under the deck's railings, a rusted weather vane spinning on the roof of a shed. Sleet comes, a shroud in verglass, ice slivers falling on fences, the clothesline. You are dead. For a month, the dog carries a deer's leg everywhere, buries it, digs it up. Yellow jackets shiver out from paper tombs, collect around a doorframe, gather around the dog. Wrapped on air, the insects ring, jeweled bells, nettles, thorns. That was poet Joni Wallace, accompanied on piano by Renzo Ayurio. You can find out a bit more about the Tucson Poetry Festival, which is celebrating 40 years, by visiting our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a local law enforcement officer has a new young adult novel about a hitman father and his teenage son. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. KJZZ is your source for news and analysis. No school is better than the quality of the teachers inside the classroom. Residents at three mobile home communities are being forced to move because the park owners have redevelopment plans. KJZZ is the Valley's news leader. Listen to KJZZ on air, online, and on your phone. More than ever before, KJZZ depends on donations from listeners to fund all of the crucial resources behind every moment of our coverage. So please be generous now and become a member of KJZZ at kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxinon. We turn our attention to crime fiction right now and what 
might seem like an odd audience, and that is young adults. B.C. Hicks is a member of the Cherokee Nation who moved from Oklahoma to the Valley about a decade ago. His first novel is entitled My Dad is a Hitman, a misguided dream of wealth and adventure. I am in federal law enforcement here in Phoenix, and that usually requires quite a bit of travel uh, as far as different duty stations, and that is what ultimately brought us here. Creativity has been in your blood for quite some time. You got interested in painting, and when did that creativity transition into writing? Uh, That's correct. I would say I started painting seriously in high school, and then uh, I got into a lot of short stories just for fun. And I found that through my advanced English classes that I was taking in high school, that's where I kind of discovered that I enjoyed writing. It allowed me to escape from whatever was going on in the world at the time. Uh, And then uh, into college, I took advanced English classes as well, where we wrote essays and short stories regularly. Is there anything that you find similar in the process? I mean, you mentioned escapism. And I think for many, writing can be that. But are there any other similarities? Probably the main one that comes to mind immediately is is more along the lines of the process. Um, For me, if I'm doing anything creative, whether it's painting or whether it's writing, I prefer complete silence. And that allows me to mentally get into a place where I block everything out. So there's no phone ringing. There's no dogs barking or anything. And that allows me to get into the appropriate mental space to just let things kind of evolve on their own, let the story progress if I'm writing, let the picture progress if I'm painting. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we do often talk about just the writing process in general, and certainly different authors have different processes. You have a brand new novel. In fact, it's your first that was recently released. And what an interesting topic. It's about a hitman and his son, Luke. How did you come up with the plot, which centers on a wise, beyond-his-years, 14-year-old whose name is Luke, who tries his best to steer his childish dad clear of the dangers that they face once his dad becomes a hitman? Right. So this is just kind of one of these daydreaming stories that has essentially just been rattling around in my head for years, I guess, basically, at this point. I never thought that I would take on the challenge of writing a novel, but I can't say that there was a specific trigger that happened that made me decide to give this a whirl. But once I decided to write it, since the story had been in my head for so long, I pretty much just let it flow. That's really interesting. And you mentioned your career in law enforcement, of course, and that's why I was curious if there was something in that capacity that made you want to write a book about crime. <laughs> you know, the irony right. in that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I've actually had several people ask me that. And, you know, I've been in law enforcement for over 20 years, and I think that I've only ran across one legitimate hitman, and that was years and years ago. So I can safely say that that encounter had absolutely nothing to do with this story. Tell us a little bit then about how this dad becomes a hitman. Obviously, we don't want to spoil too much of the book. Sure. And how this plays out a little bit in it. Sure. So Luke and Larry Wims are from Colorado. The dad, Larry, loses his job. And so to get a fresh start for the two of them, they move to Los Angeles Once they get to Los Angeles, they happen to come across a deceased person in the adjoining hotel room. And it turns out that that person is a legitimate hitman who works for a 
world-renowned ancient assassin organization. And just through happenstance, Larry decides that he's going to take over the hits, so to speak, for the hitman uh, to try to make a ridiculous amount of money and get them situated for life. Why did you want to aim this for young adult readers? I mean, obviously, I think sometimes we have discussions about whether or not younger people can separate fact from fiction. So from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted the story to be funny, to be lighthearted, and to not contain any gore, you know, gruesome, violent scenes or adult language of any kind or anything like that. So if this were a movie, I would say that it would have a rating of PG. Uh, so while it is uh, about a hitman, you know, you have to keep in mind that Larry is a terrible, terrible hitman. Um, <laughs> B.C. Hicks is author of a brand new novel, his first. It's called My Dad is a Hitman, A Misguided Dream of Wealth and Adventure. B.C. Hicks, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your latest. And also, best of luck on the sequel, which is in the works. It is in the works. And thank you. I appreciate you having me. You can find out a bit more about B.C. Hicks on our website, word.kjzz.org. And now let's continue with our spotlight on National Poetry Month with an Albuquerque, New Mexico-based poet. Hello, everybody. This is poet P.W. Covington out on the road for April Poetry Month, coming to you from a hotel room in Los Angeles, California. This is a poem I wrote called Bodhisattva Prayer. If all, all my piety and obedience to robed men, if all my effort, if all my diligence, if all my denial of base and human things, if the totality of all my merits from lust and vice centered conception amount to any mediation at all, I surrender it here among these law books and liturgies. If it in its mass and drag could buy you even a week, if even a day of delay in your also blink from existence, I would ordain before puberty and sit wall staring for 8,000 years without sleep or food, living only on vapor, so that you might enjoy one more breath. That was an unpublished poem called Bodhisattva Prayer, and you can find out a bit more about P.W. Covington on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a Valley artist, filmmaker, producer, and writer has a new novel set in 1940s Harlem. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Whether your business is new or deeply rooted, large or small, you can share what's great about it while supporting a vital community service, KJZZ. It's a fact that listeners trust and support companies that sponsor KJZZ. And by becoming a sponsor, you build a stronger connection to everyone in your community. Get connected today at SponsorKJZZ.org. KJZZ is hosting an expert panel as part of the ongoing water series, Every Last Drop. The conversation hinges on the water beneath the surface and its regulation and conservation. It's April 26th. Sign up at rsvp.kjzz.org.
Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Pepper Chambers is a tireless supporter of the arts and is a maker of them as well. She's a Valley-based filmmaker, producer, and writer who recently released a new novel entitled Harlem's Last Dance. The book is set in the 1940s and is about both the place and a young woman who shares its name. I've been in the Valley for just over a year and a half. So we're new, but my family has been here for over 20 years. My mom's been in Tucson for longer. So I'm the new transplant and learning my way through Arizona. We have talked in the past on some arts-related projects for news stories I've covered. You just have no quit. And (laughs) this new book, Harlem's Last Dance, is an example of that at nearly 550 pages. One of my personal favorite periods of American history is the Harlem Renaissance for numerous reasons. Part of that is because I was a literature major. This book is set about a generation later in 1945, but that borough plays a dual role in that it's part of the title and also the first name of the central character. I love Harlem. I've lived with her. I'll talk about the character first and then the place. I've lived with this young woman. She's 18 and she's in a place where she is, um, she's gone through some bad times with her family. What's central about her is that she's embarking on something new. She wants a new life. And that is something that I have been kind of in quests for as well. So Harlem to me is a place and she's a feeling and she's literally a young woman looking for herself. And I'm the same as you, Tom. I'm completely enamored with the time period. I'm enamored with the neighborhood. I did live in New York for a while, and uh, it was always my goal and my dream to live in New York. And so I think that was also important as well as setting the book in this place that I have this um, sort of romantic, not sort of, a romantic feeling (laughs) with. (laughs) I think some people may simply ask, why a book about 1940s Harlem in 2023. Yes. Part of the thing that I love from the 40s is what I consider to be this concept of things being sophisticated and nothing is said. You know, we live in a time now where, oh my gosh, everything is in your face. There's no innuendo. It's kind of awful to me. And so I prefer this feeling of of um, a cloak a little bit, you know, not with being naive about it, but I just love that we can have some anonymity to things that are scary and awful and even beautiful. I feel like the 40s was a time when that was still the case. Clothes were better. You know, we're wearing hats, we're wearing gloves, we're walking around in a space that is about personal sophistication as well as caring for your neighbor and others. And I feel that that is a time period that I would like to grab something from, you know, we know everything wasn't fantastic. I'm not saying that, but I do think that there was something about how we treated ourselves and one another that led to sophistication. And that appeals to me. So the book being set in 1945, 18-year-old Harlem Markison is withering beneath the masquerade of sultry stage lights, jazz, and beautiful dancing girls. And I think that is evocative of what you've described about things not being such in your face. It's not that there isn't sultriness, but I would draw an artistic parallel to photography, for instance, where you have the Mm. difference between maybe a partial nude and a full nude. Yes. Is that a good comparison? 
Absolutely. I love that. I love that. And it is the partial nude, your imagination fills in the rest and the full, it's all there. You still have imagination when you're looking at it and it's still art and there's still something to be said for it. But I really do love this bit of mystery and like, what is the secret? What am I, what can I add to this art that comes from me that the artist has left for me? Harlem is imprisoned in Lady Magdalena's brothel entangled in a web of glamorous greed, sex, obviously. Of course, there's trust issues with people and a sense of not being able to escape. And I certainly do not want to spoil the ending for people, but what is she learning about herself? Is Does she start to learn that maybe there is a way to get out? Yes, Absolutely. And I equate this to life as well. And what I want for her and what I want for myself and others is that you have to look within sometimes to find your way. And a lot of times we want to trust others and we need to trust others. But there is something to be said for understanding that you have power within. You may not know what it looks like. You may not know how to access that power, but it does exist. And that's what Harlem has to do. She has to do things that she wouldn't expect to do. She has to fight for herself and find a way. So I think that's just a really important message to pass on to young women specifically, but also for all of us. Well, and especially I'm thinking against the historical backdrop of the world that Black women have had to live through. Obviously, I'm not one of them. (laughs) No. (laughs) But you're talking about, first of all, a white male-dominated world. Yes. Right? And then just in general, a male-centric universe. Yes, exactly. And that is why in the book, there are women who are villains, there are women who are heroes, there are women everywhere in the presence of this book. And and that speaks to exactly what you said. And it's not that I'm putting men down. There's also a a man, Jonas, he's also central character in this. He's looking for his daughter. And I, I speak to a father's love, but the but is the big part is that I, I want to write about women. I want to see more of us in stories, central characters, not just in the in the fringe and kind of not having major decisions and things like that. I want to write about women. And this book in particular, it also deals a bit with human trafficking and those silent things that happen to Black women that we don't always talk about or don't make it to the media. And it's, it's very subtle. It's This book is on in your face, like human trafficking, Black women. It's about something where in some ways... To get into that just a bit, human trafficking is something very silent. And when I lived in Los Angeles, we worked on a play and we spoke with some organizations that work with people who are trafficked. And we learned it's right in our face. It's right there. And you just, some if you know to look for signs, you can see it. But if you don't, it's passing right by you. So some of that is in this book as well, where I just kind of want to put a spotlight on something that's also a bit scary and happens to us and happens to Black women. But ultimately, yeah, I wanted to put the women in front here with this story. And if you're not acknowledging the past and the present, right, and a lot of the terrible things that happened, how can you heal the future? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. Pepper Chambers is a tireless advocate of the arts and just a darn fine writer. I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about Harlem's Last Dance. Thank you for having me. You're very kind. It's nice to spend time with you. You can find out a bit more about Pepper Chambers on our website, word.kjzz.org. In the meantime, let's continue with our Spotlight on National Poetry Month with a local poet. 
This is Melissa Lido, reading from The Neon Graveyard. You arrive where you began, in a city that is cold, on a day that began in snow, where through the glass face of a Thai restaurant, you can see a tent on the corner of a street you've seen a thousand times, on a day that is cold, after a morning began in snow. There's a chandelier to dimly, brightly glow a table for eight warm bodies come to order pad thai and crispy trout, and the food comes steaming. You can both feel the beat of a song overhead and vibration within your own ears, and the album is called In the Garden of Souls. Like all of us here, within the same 200-foot radius, except one of us is sleeping in a tent on the corner of Southwest, 9th Avenue and Oak Street, and it isn't you, and it isn't me. When you bundle up, stomach full of violet gin and butterfly pea flowers, not an ache for a rice grain, the tent is still there outside. You wonder if this restaurant lets sisters call in orders for their unsheltered brothers gone from home, cocktailing meth with fentanyl. When you bundle up with your belly full of garlic shrimp and peanut sauce and fried rice, the tent will still be there. And you will have to think about this when you walk by, not wanting to be bothered or asked, because you're afraid you'll feel guilty, that you'll need to ask forgiveness for something so basic as being fed and warm and on your way to where you are going. That's the first poem from an upcoming collection called Neon Graveyard. And you can find out a bit more about Melissa Lido on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, NPR's All Things Considered co-host Mary Louise Kelly talks about her new memoir. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? Whether you spend rush hour in the car or in the kitchen, All Things Considered from KJZZ and NPR is there. Get up to date while you're getting home or getting dinner started. Listen to KJZZ between 3 and 6 on 91.5 or the mobile app. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. NPR's All Things Considered co-host Mary Louise Kelly has a new memoir entitled It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. The book is about balancing work and family life and follows two prior novels by Kelly. I was curious at the outset of our recent conversation why she chose real life versus fiction this time. I will answer that by sharing the quote that I kick off the book with, which is from the great writer Toni Morrison, who said something to the effect of, if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you should write it. And I'm a writer, and I found myself really, really wrestling with the balance, the juggle, the work-life balance, the leaning in, the leaning out, you know, whatever you want to call it. 
which I thought all of it was going to get easier as my kids got older. And I was, to my surprise, finding that I was finding it harder as they became teenagers. And then as my oldest was about to be a senior in high school, and I was staring down the last year that I could guarantee he was ever going to live under the same roof as me. And it brought up all these emotions and had me thinking hard on choices that I had made over the years, uh, trade-offs that I'd made to try to show up for my work and show up as a mom. And sometimes that all works beautifully. (laughs) And then there are many days where it's not and all the balls get dropped at once. I was really struck by the title because I am a creative writer in addition to what I do with respect to journalism. It goes so fast, punctuated by periods in between those words. That was my brilliant editor who said, should we put periods in between just for emphasis? And I thought, I mean, you're a publisher if you think that. And I I actually am so glad we did. Yeah, because it forces a reader to stop. And it just struck me as a memento mori, a remembrance that we all eventually pass on from life. And you take each word in. It came about because of a conversation. Um, People who listen to All Things Considered may have heard me in many an interview that is live saying to my guest, okay, and in the time we have left, or just a few seconds left, Senator, or, you know, in the in the minute we have to go, and I'm trying to telegraph on air to them, like, you know, this is not the moment to launch into your 17-point deficit <laughs> reduction plan. <laughs> like, pick your top point, and that's right. what we got. Um, but I'm also signaling to all of you who are listening, um, I'm not being rude if I jump in, you know, in a few seconds from now and cut this person off. I have no wiggle room. Um, I, I got to land this plane. So I'm trying to be transparent about doing all that. And I, I do think about, you know, I, I'm so transparent and so conscious of it in my work. I had been less conscious of it in my personal life and my family life that that time was rushing past really quickly, too. And Suddenly it became apparent to me that I had this deadline at home. I wanted to read a passage, if you don't mind. Please. What I think will give future octogenarian me pause is not the big decisions, but the accretion of all the many, many small ones. None of them seemingly significant in the moment. All those weekday soccer games when I showed up late or failed to make it all together. The playdates I skipped, the pool parties that I missed, the school pickups, the chance to hear all the chatter from the back seat, the morning baking cookies when it was the nanny in the kitchen instead of me. And you go on to lament that fact afterward. Yeah. It's in a chapter called The Helicopter. What is that title reference? The Helicopter references one of the big dramatic moments. Um which the the very short version of which was I was on assignment in Baghdad and uh, running to get into a helicopter that was going to take us to our next round of interviews. And um, a nurse called from my son's preschool back in Washington to tell me he was sick, like really sick, and how quickly could I get back to get him. And um, I'm trying to answer her and trying to sort the logistics of that when the line went dead like I lost the call and I couldn't get her back um cell service failed you know this is more than a decade ago in in Iraq and I had to get in this helicopter and take off and I it was a few hours before I was able to get cell phone service again and find out that he was okay and I just remember sitting in that helicopter looking down over Baghdad and thinking what the hell am I doing (laughs) 
I love my job and I worked really hard to get here, but my son needs me and I am thousands of miles away and I can't get to him and I can't even tell if he's okay. And I was assigned that night to sleep in this trailer parked behind one of Saddam Hussein's old palaces in a triple bunk bed. And I just remember making my deadline and then crawling into that bunk bed and crying and thinking, right now, I need to make a different choice. And I started writing what became my first book on the flight home back to Andrews Air Force Base. And not long after, quit my job at NPR. And I, um, I wrote books, and I loved it, and I still love it. And it's a totally different challenge from my day job in uh, Deadline News. So you left in 2011, but you returned to NPR in 2016 and became a co-host of All Things Considered in 2018. Fast forward to 2020, you had a very famous exchange with former President Trump appointee, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The interview started out with discussion about Iran's nuclear program and shifted into a discussion about then U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. It did not go well, to say the least, but you had cleared the topics with the secretary's staff. There was an abrupt ending after a few questions, and then, as we can all recount from a famous conversation that you had with co-host Ari Shapiro on All Things Considered, you recapped exactly what happened after that. And I think all of us who were listening were struck when a secretary tried to wield his power and ask you to point out where Ukraine was on a map that had no borders and you were able to do so. I want to play that conversation between you and Ari that occurred after the interview with then Secretary of State Pompeo. Thank you. Thank you. Secretary, thank you. Thank you. Mary Louise Kelly is here in the studio. And Mary Louise, will you explain what's happening at the end of the interview there? Hey, Ari, what is happening there is an aide has stopped the interview, said, we're done. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And you heard me thank the secretary. He did not reply. He leaned in, glared at me, and then turned and with his aides left the room. Moments later, the same staffer who had stopped the interview reappeared, asked me to come with her, just me, no recorder, though she did not say we were off the record, nor would I have agreed. Mm -hmm. I I was taken to the secretary's private living room where he was waiting and where he shouted at me for about the same amount of time as the interview itself had lasted. He was not happy to have been questioned about Ukraine. He asked, do you think Americans care about Ukraine? He used the F word in that sentence uh, and many others. He asked if I could find Ukraine on a map. I said yes. He called out for his aides to bring him a map of the world with no writing, no countries marked. Huh. I pointed to Ukraine. He put the map away. He said, people will hear about this. Uh, and then he turned and said he had things to do. And I thanked him again for his time and left. Wow. We have reached out to the State Department to let them know we plan to report this coda to the interview, and we have not yet heard back. That's discussion between you and Ari Shapiro on All Things Considered in reference to what happened in the aftermath of your interview with then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I'm wondering about what you think now, over a year after Russia's invasion, and how that moment sticks with you and where we went. Well, I hope that the journalism speaks for itself. It is the job 
to go and ask people in positions of power tough questions in the service of holding them to account. And in this particular case, my job was to go ask the top diplomat of the United States about U.S. policy in Iran and Ukraine, then share his answers or lack thereof with the world so that people listening could make up their own minds. And it was something coming home and explaining that to my children who are used to me reporting the headlines and not being in the headlines because that interview became quite newsworthy in and of itself. And there was a fair bit of controversy, including then-President Trump weighing in from the White House and praising Pompeo for doing a good job on me and trying to explain that to my sons was uh, was interesting. But I just, you know, I think I explained it to them by saying, look, the job of a journalist is to ask these questions. You do your best to get the story. You do your best to share with your audience what you know and how you know it. And the boys had questions about it, but in my house, the the dinner conversation turned back pretty quickly to whose turn it was to walk the dog. <laughs> <laughs> it goes so fast. The year of no do-overs is the latest from Mary Louise Kelly. You hear most frequently on all things considered weekdays here at KJZZ between three and six. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for this book, Mary Louise. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. This was a pleasure. Well, we've nearly reached the end of this episode, but let's close it out with a homer in our spotlight on National Poetry Month. Rosemary Dombrowski was the first and thus far only Phoenix Poet Laureate. She has a collection of prose poems based on Emily Dickinson's fascicles, or portions of a collection published in parts. This poem is from a collection entitled Emily Dickinson's Advice to Girls in the New Millennium. Maybe you've always been a midnight girl in a daytime town. And maybe it's okay to love progress because of how quickly death takes it all away. And maybe it's okay to feel this way because of how hard it is for the brain to process. Like how pleasure can make the wilderness come alive in your head. Like how a woman can be resurrected as a dance. The only truth you need to know is that aging is the art of dying. Someday, when we're no longer girls, the morning will stop wanting us, and there will be no more eternal summer. You can find out a bit more about Rosemary Dombrowski on our website, word.kjzz.org. And thus, we bring this mammoth episode to a close. We'd like to thank the members of KJZZ who provide monthly sustaining gifts of support. Now it's your turn. Please become a member at kjzz.org or by using the free KJZZ mobile app. Portions of Word have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. We are back in early May with our next episode. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.